Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lance Thurner, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Peter Solins, professor of history at the University of California at Berkeley, about his new uh, book, 1668, The Year of the Animal in France, out last year by his own books. And this is a fascinating look at the role of animals in court and salon culture in the first decades of Louis XIV's reign in France. Focusing on the years in and around 1668, Professor Solon shows how deeply the king, the court, and artists and writers around it thought with and through animals as Louis XIV uh, redefined his authority along the lines of absolutism. And through several institutions and initiatives of this year, he demonstrates how this thinking with animals unfolded and evolved into a new political philosophy of imperial rule. And before we start, I want to add just that it's unfortunate that this is a, a, a podcast and not a video interview. For one of the great pleasures of this book are the many illustrations and plates that Professor Solins analyzes very closely and uh, trenchantly. And um, I hope that whoever's listening will uh, go out and get the book to enjoy that. So that said, uh, welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, can we start with just a little bit about your intellectual background and how you became interested in early modern animals? Sure. Uh, actually, I'm a bit of an accidental historian. Um, I come from a, a family background of anthropologists, uh, also comedians. My uncle was founder of the Second City in Chicago, and my father uh is a retired professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, but I wasn't quite sure on the field. And it was a bit of a chance encounter with one of the great early modern historians uh, of the time in the mid-1980s, uh, Professor Natalie Zeman Davis, that led me to the period. My relationship with France is much more longstanding and goes back to childhood, in fact. I spent uh, several years growing up uh, in that country, so I had the language and an intuitive sense of things, but it was really exposure to the work of, of Natalie Davis that, that led me towards the, uh, towards the early modern period. And I did my work at, uh, at Princeton, my graduate work, and I, I wrote a, a dissertation on the French-Spanish borderland and boundary. And in some ways, it's a, it's a, a set of approaches that have followed me throughout my career as an historian. I was very interested, am very interested in the construction of French identity, but rather than start at the center, either the symbolic center or the geographic center, and so on, I've always approached these things from the outside, as it were, from the periphery. And so my work on the, on the French-Spanish borderland was an attempt to make sense not only of the, the history and formation of the border, but also the development of national identity in the borderland. And as I say, it's an approach which, uh, which I've pursued through four or five books uh, in my career, including work that I did elsewhere in the Pyrenees on um, forest management and environmental history, which may sound somewhat distant from 
this kind of approach, but I was particularly fascinated by a set of events around 1830 where peasant, young peasant men partially disguised themselves as women in order to chase out forest guards and charcoal makers from the forest. This in an attempt to push back against the National Forest Code of 1827. Uh, so I did a little book on that called Forest Rights, the War of the Demoiselle in 19th century France. And then I returned to my concerns of immigration, the history of nationality, the problem of citizenship, all focusing on the pre-modern period, on the period before the Industrial Revolution, before the democratic revolution of the late 18th century. And uh, I had finished a book on naturalization and the naturalization of foreigners in France that spanned the period from the early 16th century to the early 19th century. And uh, like many historians, was kicking around the archives looking for my next project. And I became particularly uh, intrigued by a set of events that are, have long been known to historians, but have still lack uh, their modern or contemporary treatment. And these are the so-called animal trials that took place in the Renaissance in the 15th and early 16th century, into the 17th century, particularly focused in France and particularly in one region of France, in Burgundy, in which animals were actually treated not just as um, sentient beings, but as beings with uh, legal uh, personalities. And so they were held responsible for criminal acts such as, for example, pigs running wild in village that would commit uh, infanticide were put on trial, given lawyers to defend them, prosecutors to pursue cases against them, jailers to secure them while they were being treated, and so forth. I thought, what a great story. What an interesting story. Uh, what an, what an interesting uh, counterpoint to the question of animal rights. I, I think I'll write about animal wrongs and see if I can somehow make these two things fit together. In order for that to happen, though, I needed to make sure that there was resonance of these trials in learned or literary culture in the early modern period. And there I was most disappointed because no matter how hard I looked, these trials, which, re, which retained a certain local notoriety, uh, nonetheless failed to uh, echo within the literary culture of 16th, 15th and 16th century France, with one notable exception. And that exception was the great uh, tragedy writer, tragedian, Jean Racine, who rewrote uh, the play of Aristophanes uh, called The Wasps, in which the third act consists of a trial of a dog who is accused 
of stealing uh, a capon, a castrated rooster, and is put on trial. And all the commentators who have looked at this uh, play, which was produced in 1668, have insisted that it was simply a rewriting of Aristophanes, the Wasps. And I had another idea. It seemed to me that this was uh, actually the echo that I had been looking for uh, of um, of these popular animal trials, uh, which found expression within uh, within literary culture. And so I began to look for other other indices, other signs, other evidence of um, these trials. I couldn't find any, but on the on the other hand, the year 1668 kept coming back to me. It was the year, most famously, where Jean de La Fontaine uh, uh, most famously published his fables using animals as part of an extended and oblique commentary on the authority of uh, Louis XIV. And the more I looked into the year 1668, the more I recognized that it was very much an animal moment, not unlike today, in which animals found uh, themselves uh, present in all sorts of media, in tapestry, in painting, in philosophical texts, in literary culture and in writing, and uh, in all sorts of different contexts as well, that is, put to different uses, put to different purposes. And out of this inquiry as to why this should have happened at one moment, this clustering of images and uses of animals at one particular moment in time, uh, eventually came this book, which uh, retained the title 1668, The Year of the Animal in France. Uh, great. That's a great introduction, uh, getting us into the book. So then uh, to kind of think of the book uh, to start with as a whole, um, you know, in recent approaches to intellectual history and in animal studies, we've become um, familiar with the idea that the category of animals and animal al- animality or animalness uh, can be a useful foil for looking at social thought. Um, and of course, in all of that work, uh, Descartes is a prime example. Um, how does it change things in this book uh, to look at actual, real, concrete living things and their presence in the past? Well, Again, I, I, I think that what's uh, distinctive here and is the convergence and the unexpected convergence of these, uh, as you put it, very concrete uses of animals uh, throughout a wide variety of media from painting and tapestry uh, to writing and drawing. And... As I began exploring this topic, it became obvious to me that uh, this animal moment took shape under the shadow of two big figures. 
one political and one philosophical. And so the two figures were Louis XIV, who had just assumed uh, his uh, reign uh, in the year uh, 1661, and who spent the decade of the 1660s really building up the symbolic apparatus that was to become what we know as absolutism, the political form of absolutism. And the other figure, as you mentioned, was René Descartes. Now, Descartes was dead by now. He died actually in 1650 uh, in Sweden, where he was consulting with uh, Queen uh, Christine. Uh, But in 1668, his writings, and especially his writings about animals, uh, came to the fore. So again, I thought that thinking about animals under the shadow of these two figures, Louis XIV and Descartes, would be a way of opening up an inquiry into a large, an important set of philosophical questions, say, between the rise of mechanism and the establishment of the absolute monarchy, but also a set of very particular questions about cultural production or different kinds of cultural production in and around 1668 that, yes, was about concrete animals, specific animals, but more broadly was a way of interrogating what it meant not just to be human, but to be a French human. And so my older concerns about identity and the construction of identity came back very much to haunt this book as I use this moment, this animal moment, uh, to think about Descartes and Louis XIV, and more broadly, what I think of as a kind of moment of cultural rupture in the thinking about the relationship between animal and human in French and more broadly in European history. Yeah, and so it's a moment of rupture. And what is what is being ruptured? Well, here I, I'll take this opportunity to complain publicly that the reviewers didn't quite understand me in the book. Uh, in particular, Lynn Hunt, who did a very generous review in the New York Review of Books, nonetheless faulted me for both claiming a rupture and then backing away from it. So I'd like to try and explain that a little bit. Uh, The rupture is what I call, and here I'm distantly following the work of French philosopher and theorist Michel Foucault. I'm talking about a rupture of what he calls an episteme, which is an entire cultural framework of organizing thought and practice, not just in intellectual work and also in the sciences, but also in politics and in um, uh, the state-building practices 
which uh, appeared in the 1660s. So the two epistems, the two formations, cultural formations, for which 1668 represents a rupturing moment, I give names to. And it's somewhat of a conceit, and it's a somewhat of a way of of shorthanding what is, in fact, indeed a, a fairly complicated transition. But I, I call the before moment, if you will, of 1668, I call it Renaissance humanimalism. And that's a kind of play on the idea of Renaissance humanism. But what it suggests as a neologism, that is, as a word invented, uh, in order to talk about a concept that didn't have a word at the time, what it suggests is uh, two characteristics. One, a refusal of the clear ontological distinction between human and animal. So in Renaissance humanimalism before 1668, humans and animals were not, in fact, conceived of as um belonging to entirely different kinship groups and communities, but rather intellectuals and others underscored the continuity of kinship relations, of community relations, and indeed even of political relations across the species boundary. And at the same time, the notion of Renaissance humanimalism uh, playing on the notion of Renaissance humanism is broadly human-centered. That is, it's at once anthropocentric and anthropomorphic. It's founding. It's founded on an understanding of animals insofar as they are, in some sense, of use to human beings and to human societies. And the uses on which I focus are not so much the utilitarian uses of animals as foodstuffs or for clothing or for transport, but rather the uses of animals as models of virtuous and civilized behavior. So Renaissance humanimalism in this sense elevates animals to uh, a kind of virtuous position. For your readers who might know something of the period, the, the, the key proponent of this worldview would be Michel de Montaigne, writing in the second half of the 16th century, who again elevates animals uh, as not just rational beings, but uh, as moral beings, and as moral beings who occupy uh, a position superior. Uh, to that of humans. So that's the before picture of 1668. And the after picture of 1668, I call classical naturalism, the advent of classical naturalism, in which in and around 1668, this new conception of animals, but also new uses of animals to think about absolutism and mechanism comes to the flow, comes to the fore. And we can identify this kind of naturalism with the work of René Descartes and his mechanistic account of animal behavior. But I want to argue that the challenge to Renaissance humanalism was much broader than just Descartes and took place 
uh, among a whole uh, swath of thinkers, of philosophers, but also of painters, of poets, of tapestry workers, many of whom were in the employ of Louis XIV and his court, but not all. So the, the shift that I'm looking at is a shift between Renaissance humanimalism and classical naturalism. And my critics uh, in the book have said, well, he, he makes too much of this single moment of 1668 because he goes on to show how, in fact, the shift was hardly as complete as it would be stated, as it's just been stated, for example, and uh, how any number of individual uh, uh, creators uh, in different media uh, are borrowing selectively from both sides, as it were, of this uh, epistemic divide. And that's actually part of the argument of the book. And I think a part of what I'm trying to contribute to a particular approach to intellectual and cultural history is that things change, culture changes, intellectual paradigms change, worldviews change. But people don't wake up that morning differently. In other words, people live through these changes and they borrow in their cultural and productive work. They borrow from both sides of this epistemic divide. So most of my characters uh, in this book, uh, both the human character, the human animal characters and the non-human animal characters cannot be easily located uh, as living simply on one side of the 1668 break. But rather, in this book, I try to explore how, in each case differently, they borrow selectively from both the older paradigms and the newer science and worldview that comes out uh, of this animal moment of 1668. In this, this movement, you break down uh, processually and uh, is in the three parts, the three main parts of the book, uh, we see different iterations of this movement from uh, the Renaissance humanalism to the classical naturalism. Uh, can you explain a little bit what you see in this step-like fashion? Sure. Uh, and I, again, I, I would insist uh, to your listeners how everything that happens in this book happens under the shadow of these two larger-than-life figures, the absolutist monarch Louis XIV, who is actually going to reign from 1661 all the way to 1715, and René Descartes, who, even though he dies in 1650, his influence in the second half of the 17th century uh, is a shadow that informs uh, most intellectual and cultural endeavors. 
So the very first part of the book actually turns to the establishment of an institution that helps to explain this sudden and remarkable convergence uh, of animals in all sorts of different media, uh, in all sorts of different uses. And that is the founding of the Royal Menagerie of Louis XIV, the Royal Zoo of Louis XIV, which was first built in 1664 and fully populated by 1668. And here, I think, is one of the explanations, even one of the causes uh, for uh, that can account for um, this sudden and remarkable convergence, because animals are not simply uh, abstract uh, figures, nor are they only metaphors or literary devices at this point. Uh, For the very first time, at least for the court uh, of France, which uh, is not yet established at Versailles, but Versailles is already established as the pleasure garden of the king. And so it's frequently visited by the courtiers as well as by uh, foreign, important foreigners and others. At this, uh, in this pleasure palace of Louis XIV, the Royal Menagerie is the first garden pavilion to be constructed. And it actually serves as a kind of model of the royal palace that will not be finished until 1678, that is, until 15 years later, but that is quite literally modeled on a royal zoo. So we have a palace that's actually modeled on a zoo. And the very first part of the book is about this uh, peculiar status of animals and very specific kinds of animals. And in this very first part, I, I insist on the importance of exotic birds as the um, models of uh, both courtiers uh, at the court of Louis XIV and as the most prominent denizens of, uh, of the royal menagerie or, uh, or the royal zoo. And I, th- and I look at uh, these animals and how they were portray- portrayed in early literary accounts in order to establish, again, this pre-1668 uh, identity of animals as precious beasts. And I use the word precious both in the sense of being uh, valuable and exotic and rare but precious also in the sense of fitting very much into salon culture, the culture of what we know as preciosity, in which these animals in early literary accounts are uh, given attributes and described in such a way that is um, uh, convergent with uh, the tenets and principles of uh, literary preciosity in the 1660s. 
The book then turns to what I call the visual afterlives of animals, because although these animals may have led uh, short and likely unhappy lives in the sense that we don't have a lot of information about how they were treated or how the royal menagerie was actually managed, but we do have a sense uh, that the rate of replacement of these animals was really extraordinarily high, suggesting, again, that uh, their lives were not um, particularly uh, well spent or uh, spent in comfort in that sense. But uh, what I'm really interested in is not so much their lives as their afterlives, and their afterlives in, in the second part of the book in three different contexts. One is uh, in the context of uh, royal tapestry making and the decorative arts. The second is in the context of natural history and the establishment uh, of a great anatomical dissection project at the court of Louis XIV. And in the third case, uh, in the context of what was known as the science of physiognomy, that is the use of animal bodies, and in particular animal faces, in order to disclose certain characteristics of how human passions find expression. So the second part of the book is devoted to this visual afterlives of animals. And the third part of the book turns to Descartes uh, and the shadow of Descartes itself and looks at a number of uh, particular incidents, perhaps um, most famously at the time, although uh, historians today aren't as uh, aware as perhaps uh, historians of an earlier period. Uh, the most famous are these uh, are the very first xenotransfusion experiments in France. Xenotransfusion is the transfusion of blood from one species to another, and in particular, it's the use of animal blood for therapeutic reasons. So I spend a chapter, and I could have spent an entire book talking about this, a chapter called Beast in the Blood about uh, the different uh, incidences, and there were almost a dozen such transfusion attempts in 1667 and 1668 in attempts to cure madness, uh, to cure various uh, diseases, um, human diseases, and so forth. The second uh, chapter within this third part of the book uh, has also drawn some attention among reviewers because uh, it's about how three chameleons, three very specific chameleons, one belonging to a salon leader, Madeleine de Scudery, two belonging to her and one belonging to um, the uh, natural naturalist and natural historian uh, Claude Perrault, who was in charge of the dissection project, how these three chameleons became part of the debate about animal soul in the 17th century. Uh, 
really in the 1670s. And so I show how, in particular, the chameleons who that moved between the dissecting room and the literary salon were used in the debate about the reception of Descartes in French society in the 1670s. And despite the fact that two of these chameleons found their fame within a literary context, and one was dissected and drawn in the project on anatomy and natural history, I try to show how, in fact, the authors of these texts, Madeleine de Scudery on the one hand and Claude Perrault on the other, were united in their opposition to the Cartesian view of the beast machine and how they came to both use their chameleons as part of an argument against Descartes. The last chapter in uh, the, the third section of the book turns back to the gardens of Versailles, where Louis XIV had ordered the construction of a royal labyrinth, initially in 1664, but fully populated a decade later in 1674 by animal fountains that were illustrating uh, certain fables of uh, Jean of uh, Aesop that had recently become the work of Jean de La Fontaine uh, and many others, one might add, in the 1660s and 1670s. And I was particularly interested in this chapter in the reasons that Louis XIV chose not to use La Fontaine as his official uh, author for the animal fables of Aesop, but rather uh, picked a courtier who was uh, much more, shall we say, sympathetic uh, to his uh, worldview, and how this complex of the royal labyrinth of Versailles came to embody uh, the very fable of absolutism that I explore in the third section of the book. The fable of absolutism is really what distinguishes my approach and interpretation from other work that's been done on the relation of animals and power in the 17th century, notably by the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who uh, wrote several books, uh, gave several lectures and published them before he died, in which he likened the identity of the sovereign to that of the beast, because both of them existed outside of the law. Both of them exercised a kind of extra-legal authority. And in my view, that wasn't quite right. What I saw instead was the way in which Louis XIV saw himself, in fact, as the supreme embodiment of the law, which was, in this context, designed to tame the wildness and the animality 
of his subjects. And so the fable of absolutism that I describe in chapter 8 of the book is the story, in fact, of how the animal sculpture fountains of the labyrinth embody this notion of a violent and predatory world in which only royal authority is capable of establishing as an ordered and structured universe. And at one point, so at one point, or at several points in the book, you describe this as absolutism 2.0, and you contrast it to what was developing earlier in Louis XIV's reign, and yeah, this is something of a culmination. Can you describe that? Sure. Uh, again, that, that has to do with the 1.0, 2.0. It's a bit of a conceit, a nod to the way in which we think about uh, stages in the world of uh, IT and so forth. But it is a it is pointing to a kind of before and after understanding of the model or construction of absolutism uh, in which 1668 is the kind of hinge uh, or turning point in that sense. And I argue that before 1668, in this early version of absolutism, absolutism 1.0, Louis XIV is really borrowing the notion of animals drawn from Renaissance humanimalism. That is, that uh, he uh, uses animals, but animals uh, as they are represented and portrayed in literary culture, in the culture of what we call preciosity, a literary culture of the 1650s and 1660s, in which animals. Uh, as I explained before, have this elevated status in which they are deemed to be, in fact, morally superior uh, to human beings. Absolutism 2.0, emerging in the aftermath of 1668 and fully articulated in the Royal Labyrinth of Versailles, is really, in some ways, represents the devalorization of animals, if there were a single word uh, to assign to this movement, that would be it. The devaluation or devalorization of animals, in which animals are no longer the moral, uh, the morally superior to man, but actually are—and this is something that we would all recognize as part of our modern inheritance—are um, actually inferior, inferior, and also interior in the sense that human beings are really animals who have within them this beastly character and beastly identity, which, as I just suggested, requires a strong absolute authority to keep in check. So absolutism 2.2 is about strengthening the authority of the king in order to keep the bestiality of his subjects from disrupting 
the cultural order. And so that seems to be one of the reasons why the physiognomy is such an important part of this book, is making that the link between um, animal subjectivity and human subjectivity. Uh, could you so can you explain just a little bit more about that um, that uh, that thought of physiognomy and um, what's developing out of it in this period? Right. Well, it, it's actually quite complicated, and uh, I, I confess that I'm I'm not entirely convinced that I got it right. Um. And I think most historians who work on complicated problems like this, if they're honest with themselves, uh, really do uh, maintain or continue to entertain doubts, even about the theses and uh, the frameworks that they are most deeply invested in. What struck me, and I'm not the first, of course, to be interested in the problem of physiognomy or these particular drawings, and uh, your readers, uh, if they were inclined, could go to the Zone Books website and see some of the images uh, of uh, these animal-human-like figures. Um, but what I was struck with in this is uh, not so much entering into the debate uh, about the author of um, these uh, drawings, Charles Lebrun, and whether he was trying to argue about the identity of animals and humans or the difference between animals and humans, uh, what I was struck with was the class dimension uh, of this uh, project, because the human-like figures which are who are used in the illustration of the passions, in the physiognomy of the passions, are uh, men from the lower social orders, artisans, peasants, workers. We know this from the clothing that they, uh, that they wear in these drawings, but also instantly recognizable from their faces are the fact that, uh, which are unshaven, unkempt, and beard, uh, bearded, and so forth, uh, really do uh, emerge, as it were, uh, from the lower social orders. And so partly what I argue is that what LeBron was doing was not just exploring the difference and convergence between humans and animals uh, in his portrayal of these uh, animal-human faces, but also insisting on the distinction between the civilized and the bestial, and identifying that distinction, uh, or rather mapping it, onto a social hierarchy uh, that found its foremost expression at the court of Louis XIV. Uh, so as we're, as we're coming uh, towards the end of the interview, I, I want to ask one question about the sources used here. As I mentioned in the opening, uh, 
your analysis and and this well the book is very beautifully illustrated and your analysis of the images is are penetrating and uh, ex- extremely fascinating. Why is it that visual sources are so useful in telling this story compared to other kinds of sources? Well, it, it's an excellent question, and I'd like to actually insist on one part of it, which is that the visual sources that I that I came up with are very much are the story. In other words, the visual materials, uh, whether they're the tapestries or other elements of the decorative arts, whether they're they're the the engraved um, uh, engravings of natural history used by Claude Perrault, or whether they're the illustrations of Charles Lebrun in the physio- uh, in the physiognomic uh, uh, drawings. Uh, these sources are not there in my book to simply illustrate uh, a transformation that can be well and easily identified outside of it. They are the transformation. They are the object of analysis. They are what is revealing about the changing ways of thinking about human-animal relationships. So I think it's, it's important to stress in that sense, and different historians will use visual materials differently. Uh, it's often the case that historians uh, believe that, well, uh, art historians can treat visual materials as the subject of their work, but uh, we historians who work on politics and natural science and other things are only using illustrations, uh, as the word suggests, to illustrate transformations that are taking place in other domains. And uh, I very much deliberately tried to write against this tradition and to find these sources that were themselves in need of an explanation. That is, that were not obvious in their significance, even within an elaborate um, model or paradigm of the transformations of 1668, but but which also, again, required a sustained interpretation and a careful interpretation, which connected them not just to particular people and places and not just to particular media, but also to each other. Also to connected them to each other and to them thought about them as different ways of portraying, of representing uh, the, the continuities and discontinuities between humans and animals in the 17th century. Thank you, Peter. This has been a great interview, and I, I suppose our time is coming near to a close. Uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> um, I laughed because, uh, like many historians, you finish a book and um, – 
you ask yourself that for some time. I mean, some people have a good idea right away of what they want to do. I've been musing around the question of animals in the 17th century. I had thought of continuing the story into the 18th century and the French Revolution, but um, was dissuaded from doing that because a, a very well-known and accomplished historian of the French Revolution uh, in France by the name of Pierre Cernan has just published two big books on animals in the French Revolution. So there would be no point in pursuing it that pursuing that topic, but one of the things that I I might uh, continue to work on because I, I have been collecting anecdotes uh, all throughout the many many years I spent researching this book is a study that might be called um, Aristocats, uh, pets and their keepers. Uh, at the court of Louis the Fourteenth, uh, and it's really uh, a study that suggests uh, not just the importance of animals as recipients of uh, the largesse and attention of courtiers, uh, but it's also about the uses of animals within the development of court culture. And if I could end with a little anecdote that I hope will not be deemed too unseemly to your, uh, lect- to, to your listeners, one of the reasons for the, the great popularity of small lap dogs in France starting in the 1650s and 1660s, as more than one author of a treatise remarked, is that they served a particular function, especially for ladies of the court, in which um, uh, they could be blamed or held responsible for uh, the various um, uh, smells and sounds that were deemed to be uncivilized behavior at the court of Louis XIV. So these dogs, uh, little dogs uh, in particular, were uh, quite common features of the court. And um, when uh, 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 shall we say more bestial behavior uh, was uh, uh, inadvertently uh, was inadvertently practiced, uh, the animal would be punished and banished from the room. So it's a small story. It doesn't uh, itself contain the entirety of the argument, but it's one of the many ways in which uh, pets functioned uh, in court culture, uh, especially in the elaborate uh, court culture of Louis the Fourteenth. Well, well, thank you so much for your time, Peter, and uh, good luck with that next project. Well, thank you very much. 